0: You're listening to keynote speeches from our Melbourne Podcasters live event series. These are recorded live and feature the best podcast professionals in Australia who reveal the craft and techniques of creating a successful show. I'm Adam Jaffrey, Strategy Director at Wavelength Creative. We produce the show you're listening to and run the live events. Today's topic is titled, The Business Side of Podcasting, Creating an Engaging Show Which Pays the Bills, featuring our keynote speaker, Christopher Lawson, host of the hit podcast Moonshot and founder of Lawson Media. James Parkinson ran this event, so you'll hear his
1: voice kick off the questions. Please welcome Chris Lawson, creator and host of Moonshot. How you doing, Chris? I'm well, I'm well. Excellent, (laughs) excellent. So tonight we're talking about monetization and making money from your show, Um, the business side of podcasting, creating an engaging show which pays the bills. Quite a broad term, but you've managed to build your show to a point where you have uh, started to make some money. But before we get to that, you've just come back from the United States and you've attended podcast movement. Give us a lowdown on what's going over there in the States. How was the event? What did you learn? Uh, Who did you speak to? what's going on
0: <laughs> okay okay so one of the things that that i found really valuable um was of course going to podcast movement because we just don't have that many podcasting events in australia we've got auspod coming up uh in october, october. yeah um and AudioCraft as well but for the most part we don't we don't have that many events in australasia or you know, even even in Asia Pacific, there's not that many podcasting events. So podcast movement is incredible. Like it's huge. I think there's a couple of thousand people at the event this year. Um, it was held at the Marriott in Philadelphia. A lot of uh, the discussions that were being had were very much around, there's kind of like a couple of streams. So one stream is creating content another stream was monetizing your content and another stream was marketing your content. And so most of the discussions centered around that. Um, and I just found it super valuable for meeting, meeting contacts that I deal with on a day-to-day basis, advertising agencies that I work with for the show, contacts at Apple who do exist. Um, you know, there, there is a team of people at Apple that, that actually have faces and names And they do talk to people and they do attend events, um, but they were hiding for most of the events, so. um, They they
1: weren't wearing big name tags saying, I'm from Apple Podcasts. They did at one of
0: the events that I went to. um, And so I met a bunch of them, but for most of the event, they actually took the name tag off whenever they went into various sessions because people would just grab them and start saying, hey, can you promote my podcast? Um, whereas Apple's like very protective about that entire process. Um, but all the big guys from like Panoply were there. It was actually surprisingly a lot of Australians. So Wooshka and Omni Studio were there. Wondery was there talking about a bunch of their hit shows. It was basically the who's who of people that run podcasting companies, and some really interesting stories about how people started their shows.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a really cool event. I've yet to get there myself, but it sounds great. And if you're you know in Australia, we kind of isolated from a lot of the podcast space because so much of it is in the states. Um, So if you ever get a chance to to go over there, if you're traveling around the same time, or if you start making money from your show and you can put some budget into that, definitely get there because obviously you'll learn so much. The big next one is OzPod, uh, which is coming to Melbourne this year. So we're really lucky to have that come down. It's it's, put on by the ABC. Um, Yeah, if you are wanting to make connections, wanting to learn from other people, it's, it's well worth it. You know, I've been to AudioCraft, and that's great as well, which is more around the making of it of shows and stuff. Um, Ospod is pretty industry focused, um, there's a lot of creative stuff as well. And just meeting people, I find uh, at events is is really great. So, yeah. um, if you and can like get there, and like, there's plenty of things to
0: learn from absolutely that as well. So, yeah. looking at some of the conversations that were happening at Podcast Movement, one of the big conversations was around the IAB version two guidelines for podcasters. So looking very specifically about how podcasts are measured. And Sharon talked a little bit about this at the previous meetup, but it's a pretty contentious issue. So yeah, Todd uh, Cochrane from uh, Blueberry, um, he was talking about how they're implementing these IAB changes. And there was someone from IAB that was there and they put up this list of companies that have signed on to agreeing to use um, these IAB metrics. And the key sticking factor with the IAB version 2 guidelines is what's called the filtering window, which Sharon talked about. Um, but basically, that determines if you are measuring a show, uh, measuring a download or a listen to a show, in what period of time can you count the same IP address again? And with the way um, that the IAB v2 guidelines work, it's a 24 hour window, whereas currently it's like less than five minutes, right? So there's a big discrepancy in download numbers that people are seeing. So it's usually around 20% decrease in your download figures when that gets implemented. And so this was a really big talking point and it came up many times during the event, but when they put up the list of companies that were involved in the decision-making process and which had signed on to using it, there was a bunch of really interesting names that were missing, such as Gimlet Media um, were missing, Panoply were missing. Really big networks that you think should be adopting these guidelines were not part of the process. And the other interesting thing is that the IAB are charging money to podcast hosting companies to verify that their systems work correctly and these are huge sums of money that a lot of companies probably can't afford to just shell out money to the iab so i mean my opinion on on the iab is that the version 2 guidelines are a bit of a waste of time and they discount um, listens from people that work at the same companies so if you send out a show and you're trying to you're trying to hit a particular demographic of people and their phones are on the same network, all of a sudden they all count as one download from that same organization. And so that to me is like a really big issue in the way that podcasts are measured. And I don't think we've actually seen this play out properly yet. A lot of the hosting companies are just starting the process of the implementation of these guidelines, but we'll really start to see the big conversations happening from around December because that's when a lot of podcast hosts are going to force you into using the IAB v2 guidelines. At the same time, there's an argument to say that it's good to have everyone using the same measurement system. So there's
1: just a couple of sticking points around that. Let's move on uh, and focus on your show, Chris. Tell us about Moonshot, a bit about the show, how it came about, and how you've kind of gotten to the stage you were where you are now, where you can you know ask for a bit of uh, advertising dollars. So I was just
0: looking at this the other day. So the When we first started thinking about Moonshot, it was actually back in like 2015. Um, So it's hosted by myself and a co-host, Andrew, who's based in San Francisco. And both of us were journalists at the ABC. I was uh, video lead for the ABC's international services. Andrew was social media editor. And we found ourselves talking about all these big picture technology ideas all the time. And there just wasn't any shows that were really talking about the big picture ideas. There was plenty of shows talking about technology, about consumer technology, but we wanted to really focus on these, these big moonshot goals. Um, so that's where the concept for moonshot came about. And then we were trying to figure out, well, how do we actually create the show? I mean, we knew how to create, um, videos. We knew how to do like social media, but we didn't really know how to make a podcast. It very much translates from video production. A lot of the skills translate across, but neither of us had actually made a a show before. And everyone was starting to really talk about podcasts since Serial in 2014. So we wanted to experiment. So Moonshot for us was a way to both experiment with making podcasts and then also figure out how we can tell these big picture technology ideas in a really engaging way. The process for us took like a couple years before we launched the show. So we started talking about it maybe August, 2015, 2016, we started early 2016, because we're doing this around our ABC jobs and produce this really high quality show while we're doing doing everything else. And we thought, well, what's going to be the best way to do this? So we started um, coming up with this idea for like an interview style show. Andrew had decided to move across to San Francisco. He He had been based in Melbourne. And so we started playing around with some ideas. We jumped on Skype, we started talking about consumer tech and then we realized we were actually really boring. And so we recorded these Skype sessions of us with what we thought was a really engaging show, but, the connection issues with Skype meant that the conversation wasn't flowing very well. We weren't that interesting because we'd never we'd never really made that type of show before. And then we realized that actually the shows that perform really well are highly scripted. Even the ones that seem like they are not scripted are very scripted. In the same way that traditional radio is actually scripted by a lot of producers. Live radio is not just you know, John Fane talking for, for three hours or whatever. It's well, John Fane bits and- and stuff. Yeah, prepared stuff. Yeah, yeah. there's people are sending him bits of information to read all the time, and that's what makes the show engaging. Is there's producers making stuff. So we went back to the drawing board and decided we need to make a narrative show, um, and we wanted to model it off Reply All, which is just an incredible piece of journalism, an incredible piece of content. And so we went about this process of trying to come up with with a show that covered all the boxes that we wanted to do, played to our strengths, because um, like I was doing video production, video production is very much um, for what I was doing, which was like short documentaries, was very much built on narrative content. So we figured we should play to our strengths. We should build a narrative show and then we went about this process. So we reached out to like Breakmaster Cylinder who made the music. He agreed to, he, she, I don't know.
1: The mysterious The Breakmaster mysterious Cylinder.
0: Breakmaster Cylinder um, agreed to make music for our show, came back to us and said, I usually charge like three and a half thousand US dollars. And I went, um, no, we, can, <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can't do that. And luckily came back and said, we're gonna waive the fee for you um, because we love what you're doing. And you can just pay like a yearly license fee, came back with the license fee. I was like, oh, that's too much money for us. And then so like massively cut our license fee, which um, resulted in really awesome theme music. And then the other thing that we did was that we pitched the show to the Walkley Foundation for journalism because they were running this innovation program where journalists um, and companies producing journalism could apply for funding grants of up to $30,000 to help produce a piece of journalism or or produce a new service or experiment with some kind of journalism technology. And so we pitched to the Walkley Foundation and then around August, September 2016, they accepted us and gave us a $5,000 grant. So, um, and that went a lot of that went into like music for the show a lot of it went into social media marketing it allowed us to experiment with different ideas but it was just that bit of extra help to get us across the line with making a show while we're also doing full-time work we put out a preview episode as part of the grants process to try and encourage the judges to you know realize that no this is actually a thing that we're making we're definitely going to deliver and when the money came through that completely changed our ability to make content and then march 2017 we launched the first episode of the show and like a hundred people downloaded it and we were like well we've put the first episode out uh now we need to make a second episode because we'd been working on it for so long trying to get it just right and it took us another two and a half months before we actually launched the second episode of the show And it was at that point, I was like, if we're actually going to make a serious podcast, I need to be doing it full time because there's just not enough time amongst all the other work that I was doing to actually give it the love and attention that it needed. And so it just happened that my partner was looking to go overseas. And so at the same time I decided, well, why not what's to stop me from like going full time on this, using all, all the skills that I have from journalism and creating just a piece of really
1: interesting narrative content. Paying rent and eating and all that important stuff didn't, didn't faze you. Um, I had a little bit of savings. <laughs>
0: Um, but not enough to say like I should go full-time on my side business that at the time that I went full-time on it did not make any money like we hadn't run any ads at all but I was confident in the skills that I had and also the skills that Andrew had to be able to produce
1: something that people would listen to now we want to make some money How do we do that? What are the different ways to go about that? Um, There are some misconceptions around, you know, just how many downloads you need. Some people say it's 10,000. Some people say it's 20, 40. Other people say you can make money after you've got 5,000. There are probably some different models for even below that, but you've got to a point where you can actually start commanding some advertising money. So we, we got, we got to that point, maybe three, four episodes into the show. So yep. pocket cast featured
0: us that led directly to like 50, 60,000 downloads to the show. Yeah. So that brought us into the point where we could think about monetizing in terms of monetizing. It was after about 5,000 downloads per episode that, um, you could you can really start monetizing a show. Not to the point where you could live off the income. You're not going to live off the income at a 5,000-download show unless those downloads all come from a very specific audience of people. So um, the great example is if you make a medical show and it's targeted at doctors and you've got a 1,000 doctors that listen to a podcast... That audience is incredibly valuable and you probably have a full-time income from that. Um, But for most other shows, you're not going to see that from that size of audience. So, you need at least $5,000 before you're going to get the interest of advertisers because they need to have a big enough show that they're going to see a return on their investment. And you charge based on like a cost per thousand uh, model. So if you've got less than a thousand downloads per episode, you're kind of like splitting your cost already in, in half. And you're not going to make very much um, from the show. So we got to a point where I think it was around 12,000 downloads per episode when we started monetizing. And so I went to Advertise Cast, which um, is a really awesome website. So I definitely recommend that you check it out. It's basically a marketplace for podcast ads. So you can go on there, you can buy ads on other people's shows, you can put your own show on there and you can set
1: the price that you're willing to accept for an ad spot on your show. How do you know what your show is worth and what yeah. you charge for that cost per thousand or CPM rate?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, advertised casts give you a little sort of like calculator and so they give you an indication of what they think your show will sell for. But it's again, very much specific on the audience. So it's it's important for you to know who your audience is. And so you can do that by doing like listener surveys, anything and, and looking at also your audience dashboard on Omni or any other hosting platform, looking at your Apple podcasts information. You need to get as much granular information as you can on your on your podcast. And then that will contribute to you being able to sell ads on the show. So for us, for Moonshot, around December of last year, we ran an audience survey. We'd been getting plenty of ads beforehand, um, but the audience survey has allowed us to get better advertisers for the audience. Um, We got around 100 responses. We know that our audience is mostly men, um, which kind of reflects the technology industry um, for better or worse. We know that our audience largely comes from high income earning backgrounds which equates actually pretty well with podcasts in general people that listen to podcasts tend to be high income earning well educated and well educated yeah. well um, done everyone yeah and so yeah no exactly and and that's that's actually really important for the advertisers because a lot of the podcast audiences tend to be people that have disposable income and those are the people that advertisers wanna reach because they're the ones that are going to buy their products. And then like when you're thinking about what is a good CPM rate, cost per thousand downloads to your show. So it comes from a radio background. And so when you're, when you're looking at what is a good CPM rate for a podcast, um, for a smaller show in the 20 to 30 US dollar per thousand range, is a good amount to charge. So when you think about it in terms of the size of your show, so say you have a 10,000 download show, you charge $25 per thousand, you run three ad spots in your show. So, you know, 25 times 10, so you get 250 US dollars per ad spot. So potentially you can have a show that could achieve seven seven $750 probably less after commissions to the ad agencies. And there's a bunch of ad agencies that you can work with. So AdvertiseCast is one, um, but there's a bunch of others that we work with. Backyard Media works with a lot of um, smaller podcasters, Placard Media here in Melbourne as well. And all of them can bring you advertisers in specific demographics. So Placard will bring you advertisers that are interested in Australian audiences, but AdvertiseCast will bring you mostly US-based brands. So It's important to know where your audience is so that you can pick the right agency to work with. And they'll often take a 25 to 30% cut. Some companies, it'll be more than that. So if you're hosted on Libsyn and you get a show that's big enough to monetize through Libsyn, because they sell ads themselves, they take a 50% cut, except their CPM rate is upwards of 45 US dollars. So you end up around the same place. As what you might have been with a smaller company. And that scale, that also, that CPM rate scales exponentially as you grow your audience size. So if you have a show that achieves 50,000 downloads, your CPM rate is more likely to be 45, 50 US dollars. If you can achieve the scale of like a Gimlet Media production, to put it in perspective, they charge minimum around 70 um, US dollars. Per thousand for Reply All. Reply All recently passed 100 million downloads um, to their show. And based on how many ad spots they run, you could conservatively estimate that they earn 200 to 250,000
1: US dollars per episode of the show. So yeah, it's why these big networks are actually making money uh, yeah. and then. Be able to put that back into the show and into their company, you know, they've built these audiences, they're able to yeah. charge those high rates um, and they get good profit. My like show's not that big. Just, yeah. Yeah.
0: You've I, I wish to, it was.
1: Yeah, but you've, you've managed to get to a point where, you know, a lot of people dream of just to make some money off, off their show. Um, so for you, you don't have to go into specifics, but how much of your profit goes back into production and how much do you actually get to pocket like percentage wise
0: so a lot of it goes into living um no but yeah it's a lot of the a lot of the costs cover the production of the show so that covers my time that covers andrew's time covers uh cost of music to to put in the show we spent like we we spend a lot of money on production music for the show and we're kind of at this point now where we're basically sold out of ads so we're sold out of ads until at least November. And so we're, we're at this point now where we pu- we publish every two weeks. The only way to make more money from the show is to make more episodes
1: of the yeah. show. It's like a chicken and egg situation. Yeah. You've got to have the content. Um, but yeah, yeah you've got to and have- to
0: grow your audience, um, one of the best strategies is to have your show more regularly. So we want to move from being every two weeks to being every week. And so we're, we're playing around with our CPM rates a little bit to see like what our advertisers are willing to accept um, for the show because we've got this very specific audience and hopefully we can use that to scale the show's
1: production. So yeah. Putting any ads on any show is is often a sensitive process, uh, particularly if your show has been running for a while. Then you start ads because your audience is built up. Those listeners get used to a show with no ads, and then suddenly there's, they're being served ads, and people can get angsty about that. You were lucky enough to be able to have ads from you know pretty early on. You think you said what four or five episodes uh, in.
0: Five episodes in was when we uh, five six
1: episodes in was when we ran our first ads. Yeah. So how did that how did that change your approach the show how did your audience what was their feedback like from that and how did you decide you know just how many kind of spots you were going to run uh, and how you're going to work all that out to you know keep the the show so it's like you're, you're still serving great content um and you, but you're not interrupting the content too much because you have mid-rolls as well which is you know an ad in the middle of a show so how did you approach that um and at its core of you know yeah making great content yeah
0: yeah so uh, when we launched the show, we were actually making like a 15-minute show. And then when we realized that we need to spend a lot more time to meet the quality level that we're going for, like we we feel that we're competing against Gimlet because Reply All's audience is our audience as well. And so when we realized that, we decided to make the show longer. Audience feedback as well kind of suggested that the show was too short. And the one benefit that that did was allow us to... Um, have a show that was long enough that we could insert mid-roll spots and actually make money. And initially we started with doing two spots in the show. So one pre-roll spot at the start of the show and one mid-roll spot. And we were targeting 30 seconds for each spot. And then we found that whenever we did a 30-second spot, we just couldn't deliver the message for what the brands wanted in the 30 seconds. So we decided to stop doing 30-second spots. And so now we only do 60-second spots and we do three per episode. And that that was partly based on what some of the big shows were doing. So if you go to a Gimlet show, that's half an hour, you will probably find three minutes of mid-roll ads because their ads are really long, sometimes even more than that. And so I figured if Gimlet's audience can sustain that, then our audience can sustain that as well. And one of the things that we did was we went, because we dynamically insert our ads, so we don't embed them in the content. Um, We use our hosting platform to swap them out. So we can target them to specific audiences being like, we can target just to the US or just to Australia. And then when they hit their download threshold, um, what the advertiser has paid for, they get pulled out. And that results in a better experience for the audience because when it hits, you know, whatever the advertiser's paid for, say 50 or 100,000 downloads, then the new listeners go back to not having to experience ads or only having to have little house roll ads that we insert, which then gives them a better experience. And we went back through the original episodes of the show and put in ad points into those shows so that people wouldn't start at the very start and just have this experience of not having ads and then all of a sudden ads start appearing five episodes in. Because one of the things as we grew, we noticed that, new audiences there'd be a mixture there would be people that listen to the very last episode and base whether they continue to listen on that episode and there would be people that go back to the very start and then listen all the way through so we wanted to make sure that there was a consistent experience across the show And our audience mostly hasn't complained about the ads that we've run.
1: Most people are used to ads now. Um, You know, smaller shows like real indie shows and stuff that have, you know, maybe a small but really kind of passionate following, they can get a bit kind of offended by it um, because it's, you know, underground and then if a sudden suddenly a show kind of, you know, blows up and then people are like, oh, I'm getting served ads. But I think most people do understand that like particularly narrative stuff, it takes a lot of work to to make them. It takes time,
0: it takes money. People are pretty accepting. Podcast audience data shows that upwards of 80% of people listen to the entire episode and only 5% are skipping the ads. So it's a pretty small group of people that actually skip and they tend to be people that use apps like Pocket Cast, which allow you to skip the ads. So that means you're probably more technically minded if you're gonna skip the ads. But if you're like me, I'm doing something else. I don't have time to skip the ads.
1: I'm just, your phone's in your pocket and you're on the move. And if you are smart about the advertisers that you bring on that are targeted towards your audience and they kind of integrate with your audience and they're a good fit, most people aren't gonna be too offended by it. And if they know that, you know, this is what it takes for the show to be around and then want that show to still keep pushing episodes out, you know, whether they skip or not, whether they like the ads or not, they're gonna just deal with it because yeah. that's what keeps the show alive um, and that, that that's, what, fit, that's what it takes.
0: that fit is really important like the fit of the advertiser to the content is incredibly incredibly important i mean one of one of the first advertisers that we had on the show was a company called alpha box and they're an underwear company which you might think is like not a natural fit to a technology podcast but there are Underwear is specifically targeted for men. And at the time that we ran the ad, we didn't know who our audience was. But when later on we did the survey and we found out that actually ninety percent of our audience is men, that matchup actually worked really well and we got good feedback from them saying that they had people going and buying the product. But there are peop- there are advertisers that we've turned back because they're just completely the wrong I was gonna say like yeah. obviously
1: there's there's wrong there's wrong fits as well and there's things that you would probably say no to for me I make yeah. you know a sports show and I hate gambling sports and gambling is kind of you know the thing now it's such a you know a big fit but I hate it so I would never take you know money from a gambling sponsor anything that that you would morally that you'd say no to even if there was you know big money on the table
0: yeah I I recently turned down an ad spot from a US company that did financial advice. For one, their website was kind of crap. But two, I don't know anything about the US financial market. So I felt like I, I can't really tell people whether or not this is a good service. So, and I don't want to have people go and use this service that I'd never heard of before. If I'd heard of the service before, then perhaps it would be fine. Like we're running an ad soon for a company that deals in the financial space, but I'd heard of them before, they have a much better reputation than, than the other company. And we're also running ads at the moment for the US Army, um, which are targeted to the US market, which is kind of weird. um, They're specifically for the Reserve Training Corps, which if I was looking at that as an Australian, like if it was the Australian Army Reserves, 100% I'd be totally okay with it because they provide really great training for people. But the US Army is a much more like divisive thing with audiences and uh, someone really didn't like the fact that we ran this ad for the US Army. So we're probably not going to renew those ad spots
1: again in the future. Mm, It's a fine balance. Yeah. And also because like most ads and the smart ones like yours, you know, they're host red. So you're endorsing, you know, a product or a service and that has to fit with not just the show, but also like what you're willing to to endorse, right? Yeah. And as I said, like we're not going to take that ad spot again in the future. It was very
0: much about like a university training that you can get from from the army but yeah on reflection it was kind of not a great fit with our audience who very much are uh, like highly intelligent work in tech engineering design. who might have a lot of opinions about the U S army. So yeah.
1: A um, learning, a learning experience. Yeah. There. A
0: learning experience. And that's the entire show is like, we've experimented with so many different aspects of the show. We experimented with published dates. We've experimented with different styles of ads. We've experimented with different styles of content and you can only learn from all of that and, you know, make your show better by, improving on the things
1: that you notice. You mentioned earlier your schedule and you've got ads booked up. How does that play with your production schedule and, you know, getting stuff produced uh, and getting things out on time and how does that, you know, how much pressure does that put on you to actually keep churning out content and keep finding new stories once, you know, this this show is now turned into a business? How much of a like a balance is that for you that, you know, you started to do something you love? Uh, and now that the business has come into it, how much of the, a clash is that for you to, you know, one, look after things and do all the admin and stuff that, that comes into it, but then also to like keep the creative side flourishing and keep producing stuff? Yeah. I mean, I like, obviously, my background is in media. Um,
0: and so I'm used to this idea of daily content production but when you're creating a narrative podcast there's there's a significant amount of time that goes into it Um, and especially the type of show that we're producing as well Um, we're trying to talk to the people that are leaders in their fields and so they don't really like working with our production schedule because they've got their own schedule where you know they don't necessarily have time to do stuff at at a day's notice. So we have to be planning our episodes um, quite in advance uh, of when we're going to publish them. So at the moment I've got roughly four episodes that we've got up in the air and we kind of reached this point where we need to, we need to grow the show. We need to be more frequently publishing because every two-week cadence is really difficult to keep up with on an ongoing basis. So what we've done this month is we have put the show on break for the month. We're just rebroadcasting some of our most popular episodes from the past. People that have listened, started listening to the show in the past six months may not have heard these episodes. And then we're using that time to go back, create some really awesome, engaging narrative content because it's very clear to us that our audience really enjoys the narrative content a lot more than interview based episodes, depending on who the interview is. And so, yeah, we're we're trying to really think well in advance. So um, I've had some intern, I had an intern start last week. And so I set her on the task of doing research for episodes that are coming up in like five or six episodes. And, I've got another one starting next week who will be doing a similar thing. And we're gonna hire a production assistant soon who will be working on something brand new because we're trying to juggle all
1: these things. Constantly working ahead. and Along yeah.
0: with working on like client, work at the same time because my company produces podcasts and does production for other companies as well. And so, yeah, trying to balance all of those things can be really challenging, but you need to be thinking well in advance. There's shows where we recorded the first interview at least six months before we published um, the show just because we couldn't get the right mix of people to make the episode work. And I've got one of those types of shows at the moment where I recorded the interview two, three months ago. And at the moment, I still don't have the right mix of people to make the episode work. So it's just going to keep getting pushed back until I do have the right mix of people because hmm. that's really important. Yeah,
1: you think of it like you know the production of a TV show or a movie. You know things are done well in advance, and and it's just yeah. kind of when you can get that interview and when the story comes together. Yeah. Maybe a year later, sometimes. That's and- a
0: good. That's a really
1: good example, actually. Like the TV aspect is a really good example
0: of where people should have their heads at when they're thinking about, like especially brands, like when brands are going to create a podcast, they should have their head in the space of TV, not in the space of social media budget. Because if you're trying to do something that's incredibly engaging, it takes a lot of work it takes a lot of resources there's a lot that goes into sound design and editing there's a lot that goes into just
1: like general reporting like it takes time it's not something that happens instantaneously yeah if you want to have a, a sit down to chat show you know you and your mates talking about whatever that, like that's absolutely fine there's some great shows like that but yeah if you're getting into narrative stuff you know it's a lot more, lot more work and obviously the making some money off it, it helps a little bit but it's a really smart way to, to think about creating content and then hopefully uh down the line if you manage to build an audience from that because your show is you know tightly produced and um you're not kind of wasting people's time you know can eventually get to that get to that stage have you considered any other revenue streams you get advertising uh are you looking at anything else like crowdfunding or merchandise anything like that to, to kind yeah. of just supplement some of that income. Yeah, we've been thinking about this recently
0: because we've been going through a startup accelerator. So one of one of the things is, is through going through the accelerator is it's really it really forces you to think about like what's going to be sustainable as revenue streams and diversifying your revenue stream is all, always good. So at the moment, the money either comes from doing advertising through Moonshot or also doing client productions. But in terms of Moonshot specifically. I'm thinking about adding on merchandise and I'm looking at ways that we can do that in a really low touch way. So syncing up with like Printful or um, one of these websites that do custom printing and setting up like a Shopify store, making it so that like they just drop ship and print the order when when someone actually makes an order so we don't have to hold inventory.
1: You're not staying up all night yeah. packaging and shipping stuff out yeah, to people because merchandise,
0: merchandise takes a lot of time to do really well. Um, so we're probably going to do something along those lines. And I've been thinking about other things that we could add value to our audience. So maybe we could do like a paid um, newsletter where like three times a week you get analysis on... Um, What's happening in, you know, space tech or, you know, in self-driving cars or anything like that. So thinking of ways that we can utilize our skills as journalists and place a value on that, you know, matches with the time that it takes to actually put that journalism together. I don't particularly want to go down the route of doing like a, a membership subscription site if i can avoid it but i'm happy to charge people for an email newsletter or something Um, and it wouldn't be a lot it would be like five to ten dollars a month but yeah there's it's it's kind of hard when you think about monetizing podcasts because there's not a lot of ways that you can immediately think about monetizing um and this actually at podcast movement there was an interesting conversation with aaron Mankey, who does law great show Um, yeah amazing show and he was talking a lot about, well, the real money in podcasts are made when you start thinking about your show as not being just a podcast. It is a podcast. For him, it's a book. It's a TV sh- deal with Amazon. And it's those other revenue streams that bring in a lot of you know continuing income for shows. So mm. I'm starting to think about that for Moonshot because we've got these really great conversations with industry leaders that we could take and we could turn into
1: a book or, you know, we could turn it into something else. Hmm. Um, I think it's, that's a really smart way to to, yeah. to think and not just for making money, but just for the life of your show and the length of your show and, you know, how far it can reach and thinking about it as a brand. Um, yeah. If you want to get to the point, we are making money, like be smart about, what you title your show um, how you brand it you know pay for good artwork pay for an artist to, to make good stuff and yeah and make it yeah. look like it is a thing you know who knows where it can go and i think mm. being smart about it up front um, and just kind of putting the groundwork in uh, and just allowing for other opportunities down the line and kind of thinking ahead you know and think big like mm. why not mm. yeah like if we had if we had 5% of our
0: moonshot audience convert across to like a paid email newsletter, I could probably hire another another full-time person. And that would then mean that the audience would get more content for the podcast, but they'd also get all this, this other valuable information about the industry. So I think it's definitely something that we'll do I just Mm. don't know which is the right play for the show yet. Yeah. So, and I'll only know that through experimentation. So it'll probably I'll start with merchandise, and then I'll see what else works.
1: Mm. And I think through all this stuff, it's not about what works for the show. It's also what works for your audience as well. And and being you know open to you know receiving feedback from them, um, what fits them, what they would you know like to see, um, and just kind of yeah keeping all that in line is a, is a smart way to go. So with that in mind, how has kind of listener feedback and the growth of your show changed your approach to to how you make it now that it is a business? how do you how do you approach that to kind of take the show to the next level
0: yeah so i i spend a lot of time um looking at downloads to an episode so when we publish a show i probably look at it that day i probably look 10 15 times at the download numbers just trying to see like what happens on an hourly basis because then i can look for trends and i can see oh this episode actually when we published it at 10pm, that was a much better response than the episode that we published at 8pm because the time just works better for the audience. And I do a lot of that. So I, I look at the breakdown of which country is receiving the most audience. Um, recently, I noticed an issue with the audience and specifically it was with Pocket Casts. Um, and so I've been diving into that, trying to figure out what actually happened in Pocket Casts. Um, And I alerted the team to something and then I noticed they pushed out an update saying that there was a bug in something in the app. Like that kind of information you can only use if you're constantly monitoring. In terms of listener feedback, when we ran our listener survey, a lot of people said that the show wasn't frequent enough. And, but then put this caveat where they said, we want you to have more episodes, but if it means that the quality is going to be reduced, don't have more episodes, just stick to the current schedule. So we are kind of like taking that on board. And so when we go to doing a more regular show, we're only gonna do it if we can meet the quality level that our audience demands. Otherwise we're just gonna, you know, the audience probably won't um, won't know the difference if we stick to the current schedule, but um, hopefully they'll know the difference in quality because we want to, we, we feel like we're at this point now where we're almost on par with some of the US companies, but there's still a little bit more that I think we can do to really hit the market in
1: the best way that we can. Mm. And you also you do, you know, have a co-host as you mentioned, yes. uh, you both work on the show together despite the the time difference. Yes. That's obviously a big thing, you know, a lot of people say that if you're getting into podcast and you're starting out, like, you know, find someone to work with who can actually help you through that and kind of take some of the the workload off. How is that worked into the business side of things and having you know someone to, to bounce ideas off and to kind of be in this thing with you because going at it alone, as I can attest to, is pretty tough sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really difficult and that was one of the most challenging things for
0: us um, at the start of the show was trying to figure out the dynamics of how we make a really high quality show when the hosts live in completely different cities, in completely different time zones and have different life requirements right so Andrew works full-time at Uber and at the time when we started the show he was working full-time at a startup company and it just took all of his hours Um, and we realized that doing these sort of live segments where there's banter etc just doesn't work for the show as I said we experimented with an idea of doing a show like that it just didn't come together Um, but then the other factor that led to that decision was that matching up the time zones for what would work really well just kind of didn't work. So, our process now is to script everything because, at least when we script everything, he can edit the script in his evenings. He can record the show in his parts of the show separately from me. He doesn't need to do that. If there's an issue, I say, hey, go back and reread this line specifically. Um, we use a Google Docs um, so that we can keep tabs on, on what's happening um, and what notes we both have. But yeah, everything's scripted. All the interviews are transcribed before we piece them together. And there's a lot of back and forth Between us, but that's the only way that we can make that work, especially because he works full-time. And so, yeah, managing that has been challenging. So, if you listen to episodes of the show where there's just one host, that's because Andrew just did not have enough time to be able to work on the show in a specific period of time. And so, I've done the bulk of the editing and production of that show. So, it's something that we're like constantly managing and it's something that i think we'll continue to refine i think in the future we're still we're going to have a lot of remote staff potentially and so we need to really figure out the best way to make that work so whether that's using like trello boards to try and figure out upcoming episodes we've got a a master google document that basically we put in all our ideas when we think we're going to publish them we keep track of Whether we publish the episode, where we published it on like social media, etc. We keep track of which advertisers are locked in for specific shows so that we don't miss an advertiser. So, we can look at what is the fit with the show and try and like create a better sounding experience for the audience. So,
1: yeah. What's a brief snapshot of your day working on the show what kind of hours are you doing how are you maintaining that um you know staying on schedule and you know being your own boss and and all that and balancing the admin with the the creative side yeah
0: that that uh, yeah admin stuff i i didn't realize this but you know like admin for for a startup company takes a huge amount of time um like getting everything everything right like chasing down you know new clients or whatever like that every day that you wanna spend chasing down new clients and having client meetings is a day that you're not making your show. And so you need to be trying to work on that around everything else. We've been going through this startup accelerator over at RMIT. And that has had a lot of requirements for you need to attend this session, you need to attend this session, you need to have a meeting with the business manager, you need to do this, you need to do this. And some of the time there's there's like three things in the one week and I'm trying to balance that around doing the client work, trying to be in a studio space where I can actually record interviews with guests. So I've got like a home studio space set up, but when I'm working in town, I don't have that space, so I can't just jump on an interview. So, I need to be very conscious about when I schedule interview times. And then most of our guests are US or Europe. And so, I'm recording interviews at like seven o'clock in the morning or 12 o'clock at night, right? So, trying to balance all of that is kind of like a constant challenge. Um, So, I've been playing around with different tools like Calendly to try and like schedule in times with guests. Try to have specific days where I do most of the admin stuff of the business. So like today for me was mostly around admin. So I was sending emails. I was trying to line up guests. I've got an interview in the morning, but tomorrow is mostly about recording and putting the show together. Um, So it's kind of like this this balancing act of trying to well how do you fit in all of the business stuff while also trying to keep up the pace of production. It's a constant constant process. It's it's non-stop. It's just all the time, every day. And in terms of hours, I can be working any time from like 7 a.m.
1: right through to to midnight and that Mm. happens quite frequently, Mm. yeah. I think one of the things that's important to kind of think about, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before with, um, you know, thinking about your show as a brand and kind of where it could potentially lead to, whether it goes there or not, but just kind of being open and aware of that kind of stuff and kind of thinking ahead um, and just being smart about how you do things. Another option, you know, for someone who can build a show that can potentially get to the point where it can start making money is, you know, maybe a network comes along and says, hey, we love your show, we want you to come on board. You know, I think, the, the way the industry is at the moment and how it's probably going to be for for a while is that it's that open that if you make something that's good that is kind of you know a product and a thing you can potentially get people's attention and and that can actually be a way for you to make money is that someone you know brings you on board whether you do it part-time whether it's full-time however for freaking your show is maybe do it you know seasonally that's like another kind of potential Avenue to actually make a living or a part-time living off off your show. It's worked really well for, um, like, people that are part of the Radiotopia network. Yeah, absolutely. Because they all
0: own their show. Yeah. But Radiotopia helps them with, like, sourcing the advertisers and giving them this
1: network to... I, audience, I love that yeah. approach. Like mm. to be uh, on the network. Yeah. Um, for you, have you been approached by anyone, or would you be open if you know if Gimlet said, "Hey, we love your show. We know what kind of classes with our audience, but let's bring you on board. You can you can do it from Melbourne, or oh, uh, hey, we'll, we'll clash, fly you to New York." Com- it would complement their audience. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, but
0: I would. I don't know what my position would be on that. Um, I would want to have retain some form of ownership of the show, yeah. or like have some sort of clause that meant that I got X percentage of revenue from the show, because the audience size that they can bring to a piece of content is just incredible. I think more likely, a, a, like a Radiotopia would potentially be a better fit. Better fit yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely a lot of. Like I was I was at um, a Panoply mixer at Podcast Movement and I was talking to Annie Rose Strasser from Gimlet who basically sources podcasts for Gimlet. So she just spends all her time reading. Um, what a fun job. Reading pictures from people and, um, you know, well, I, I reckon most of the time is on email, just like reading <laughs> all of the like crazy people that think their show is good enough for Gimlet. Um, yeah. and like managing all of the, you know, like they're doing this like talent show at the moment where I think they had some crazy number of people that pitch show ideas. Like oh, I'm sure they have got thousands, thousands and thousands of people that pitch show ideas. And I think that's, I reckon that's one of the worst jobs probably just um, having to read through all, all of those crazy <laughs> It'd be pictures. entertaining at least. Yeah, but she knew she knew about Moonshot, which I was kind of surprised about. So like they keep their finger on the pulse. Yeah, um, for sure. So yeah, I don't. Th- I don't think we're going to end up at Gimlet anytime soon.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I, again, that's you know another smart thing to think, think about. By is association, could end up at Gimlet, right? They need oh, a better. Is- they need a better sports show. I know. I know. They totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, look, you know, we'd all kind of dream. I personally would love Radiotopia as well to retain ownership of my show and kind of creative direction and things like that. But again, like any way you can kind of support yourself and your show, um, you know, be open to potential opportunities. But it is something to think about, you know, I know the ABC investing a lot in in the industry as well and, you know, potentially want to buy uh, the rights to shows. There's a lot of opportunities at the ABC for people that want to pitch content, like from externally
0: to the ABC because they got like a million dollars um fund a million dollars a year essentially to spend yeah. on podcasts
1: i think it comes down as well to like what you want to get out of it you know and how attached you are we all get attached to our own show if you have the, the opportunity to to make it full-time but you've got to hand over the rights and all the reins to it to a company like you know is that how you want to go but there's so much happening in the space i think just being open to opportunities if they are there and just kind of yeah being smart about how you go about things and kind of putting in those fail so if your show does suddenly blow up like you've done the groundwork and you're kind of prepared to, to take that next step and hey, if it goes nowhere and then you kill it off and then you start again, but you've had all this learning up to that point and then you bring that into a new show and develop that and, and keep going. you know It's a constant learning process, but I think just being open to that and being smart about it um, and coming to events like this and, and learning from people like yourself um, is a good way to, to go about it. I agree. Any Any questions first up? Mark, come forward, sir. Uh, thank you very much, Chris. When you have an advertiser, how do they monitor your downloads? How does that work Like with communication for them to verify your stats?
0: So the way that works with a company like AdvertiseCast is initially when you're going to uh, set up your account, you send them well, there's, there's kind of like two different streams that they do. So, and I think they're moving towards this, this one stream of where you send screenshots of your download information so that they can verify that the numbers that you say are accurate are actually accurate. So usually base off the previous four episodes of the show, I tend to base on what the show average is over the life of the show because we have a really long tail life on some of our episodes so um some of our episodes just like five six months later all of a sudden get an extra five or six thousand downloads so we kind of think about like the future of the show but most ad agencies will ask you for some kind of verification Information usually a screenshot of your most recent episodes just to verify that. And then with advertised cast, they pay out via PayPal. So every time you publish an ad in a show, you go in, you mark that the ad is complete. You mark which episode it's appearing in. You mark where you say, oh, it's appearing in your show notes. It's appearing on the website. I've tweeted it out or whatever you've done. And then 30 days after that point, they will ask you to report download figures on that episode of the show. Now, because we dynamically insert our ads, the system doesn't really work perfectly for us because the ads for us just run until they hit the limit. So if a show doesn't perform as well, it just pushes into the next piece of content or people that download previous episodes of the show might hear that ad spot until it the advertiser reaches what they've paid for. But yeah, when you put in the download figures, then they just pay out automatically. Um, And it's a little bit different with different agencies. So some of the agencies will just ask you to just send them some information and there's a lot more of like this manual process of having to send them an invoice and wait for them to pay out which takes a lot more time like i prefer the advertised cast model of where i just report the figures and then it pays out automatically because the company's paid on a credit card or
1: whatever yeah and also i think as you kind of mentioned using dynamic insertion through your host to you know make use of the back catalog and be able to monetize that and then change those swap those ads in and out over time and not baking them into into the content itself because then they're kind of stuck there. And yep. yeah, it's kind of... if A you lot wanna... of the
0: industry is heading towards dynamic insertion models. Yep. Um, in the past, baked in ads have been what everyone goes for, but there's so much advantage for an advertiser in terms of being able to target specific audiences or whatever with dynamic insertions. Um, but we try to make them sound like they were just part
1: of the show. So you wouldn't have any different uh, any different knowledge. Yeah, And you can use dynamic insertion in other ways as well. Like if you want to, if you're going on a break and you want to put like your, in your last episode, a little, you know, note at the start saying, Hey, we're going on a break or uh, we're, we're on hiatus at the moment, check back in, you know, two months or whatever. And then you can just swap that out. once you come back and, you know, people going back to that episode won't hear it. So yeah, smart way to, to think about it.
0: So that comes through the podcast host. So we're hosted with Art19 who are like super selective about which companies they take onto their platform. Um, so they've got dynamic insertion, Omni um, have a dynamic insertion tool. Um, there's a bunch of different companies that now offer it. Um, Megaphone offer it. Um, it's base- becoming more standard. Yeah, it's more, more, a lot more standard. Wooshka have dynamic insertion for their ad spots, but there's kind of like different approaches to how people do dynamic insertions because they do a lot of ad sales for you. So our host doesn't do any ad sales. They just give you the tools to facilitate it. And then we use it for different things as well. So we can go back in and like trim out sections of the show. So we're rebroadcasting a few episodes at the moment. I put a little note at the start of one of those episodes saying, well, this is what's happening. This is why we're doing this. And I'll go back and I'll pull that out, that bit at the start of the episode once we start publishing again so people won't know any different
1: yeah and communication with the audience is always a smart way to to go about it and it, it costs
0: money as well i should add if you're going to dynamically insert they will charge you money for each insertion that you do and depending on which host you're with it can be a significant amount of money so if you're with libsyn pro they allow you to do dynamic insertions but the rate that they charge doesn't scale very well so it's um you need to really think about which host that you go with, and like we went with Art Nineteen for very particular business reasons. But most people won't be able to go with Art Nineteen, so I would recommend going with a company like Omni. I'm, I'm new to podcasting, so what what I've found interesting with this talk is I've been building a picture in my mind of independence. And pardon me if I'm using the wrong term, like yourself, Chris, and and then also the reproduction
1: companies you've referred to, whereby the Show the presenter of the show doesn't own the show and does not. Is that a correct, am I, am I understanding that?
0: Yeah. They're kind of like networks yeah. of networks of shows. Yeah. So not necessarily a production company, but um, there's plenty of networks like planet broadcasting network here in Melbourne yeah. um, where there's just like a collection of shows. The network takes a cut and there's different models. So some of the models is like Gimlet where they must own everything Whereas... You've talked yeah, about Radiotopia, which Radiotopia, a, yeah. the producers of the show own the show and they sign on for a period of time.
1: Uh, you said your download um, numbers increased a lot when you were featured on Pocket Casts. How did you get featured on Pocket Casts?
0: Yeah, okay. So this is something that I get asked all the time in relation to Apple as well. Um, so with Pocket Cast specifically, Pocket Cast has a very tech savvy sort of audience um, and so, for us, what happened was we got featured in a podcast, well, not in a podcast newsletter, but in a tech newsletter. And after that happened, we got featured in Pocket Cast. So, my direct correlation that I can see from that is that people at Pocket Cast read the newsletter and saw that the show was there. I also tweeted at them and tagged them a lot to say, we're on Pocket Cast, we're on Pocket Cast. Yeah. Um, they'll,
1: they'll take recommendations. Yeah. Like if you if you pitch them, um, like they'll yeah. consider it, they'll put it on, take it on board, put it into their the filing system. They used to
0: have someone that was specifically dedicated, um, like selecting shows. Curating shows, shows yeah. yeah. But now their approach is more that they use their internal systems to surface a range of shows and then they manually go through and select the ones um, as a team which are going to be featured. And yeah, so it was incredibly dramatic change. And it's still the majority of our audience comes through Pocket Cast, which is completely unlike the majority of shows. Majority of shows are like 60% Apple and we're like 50% Pocket Cast and Apple is maybe less than a third of our downloads, um, which is really unusual. But similar thing with, in, in terms of like getting featured on Apple, Getting featured on Apple is really about just making killer content and having really amazing artwork for your show because Apple's selection process is actually filtered down through the podcast hosts. So if you can make something that your podcast host is likely to push on to Apple or you can you can create enough buzz around your show on social media that Apple notice it, those are kind of two ways that you can get it in front of their attention and as you become a bigger company, then you can, then companies get sort of like a direct connection.
1: So we've talked a little bit about programmatic advertising and dynamic ad insertions. And the way I look at it is I love geofencing. That's great, I'm sick of hearing American ads, but how far down that rabbit hole are like, do you have any kind of moral safeguards you've got in place or again, thinking out in the long term for this show, how comfortable are you with the very invasive level of advertising, we're going to get possible in podcasting very soon, right. if not now. So
0: there's a, there's a bunch of like scary stuff that's happening or potentially scary stuff that's happening in podcasts. So specifically with the Megaphone platform. So what they've done with Megaphone is take all of this geographic information and then overlay that with Nielsen data as well, right? So Nielsen have trackers on, you know, how many number of big websites. And so that Nielsen data, when you go to a website, uh, a news article or something on a site and they track that, oh, your IP address hit this specific article and that same website has like a Facebook pixel on it. And then they can they can track the fact and, and associate you as an individual with other elements of your profile. They've now created the system when they merge that and they see the same IP address, downloaded a podcast as visited this other website, they can now target the ads specifically to you. So when you go to Megaphone, you can say, I wanna target women that are age 40 to 65 who drink coffee. And you can get very granular with that information and it's pretty scary. But if you're advertising, it's kind of great, right? So, um, but yeah, I, I think anything that makes the ads better for the audience, is better for the audience. If you if you listen to ads that are more relevant to you, um, you're less likely to feel this compulsion to wanna like skip the ad. You're more likely to make an action that supports the content um, because the other model of course is to just pay for the content and put everything behind a paywall and i don't think that's great for the podcast ecosystem so yeah
1: i think everything you do should be listener-centric um and make those decisions based around what's best for your audience um and that goes for you know the advertisers that you bring on board um and how you go about that but just yeah being aware of that um thank you everyone for uh, for coming out tonight and please thank chris Lawson again <laughs>